Okay, so I live off of Lake Merritt, downtown Oakland, which is wonderful, right? Except at night, walking around the lake, you can see them. Their naked tails scurrying about, nasty, attacking discarded chicken nuggets. Heck, they'll attack the baby goslings if the mama's not paying attention. Swamp rats. Fat, evil, godless. And last week, at 1.37 a.m., when I hear creeping from my walls, chittering coming from my ceiling, I almost scream because I know there are rats. Swamp rats in my house. Every sound, every settling of the 70-year-old structure. Rats. On my clean kitchen floor, rats swimming up through my toilets, rats in my cupboards, rats. No sleep. Next morning, I called a rat man and begged him to please come right away. He goes around setting traps. I tell him I can hear him. I tell him I need all of the traps, all of them. The kind that snap metal teeth together, put them everywhere everywhere I can't have rats up in my house man I can't have it he sets up the traps says we should have our first victim the next day or so night falls and I hear him creeping crawling screaming to each other on the other side of that wall I hear him but the trap remains empty Next night, empty trap. The next night, I hear the trap. Spring. Plop! I go run to inspect the carcass, but there's nothing there. And I know, lack of sleep, night terrors, I know I'm going crazy. I know this, but I have to wonder if it ain't rats. What is it at night, laughing on the other side of these walls? It's that time of the year, Snappers. The haunted time. The dark time. The time when the veil between the living and the dead is torn asunder. As Snap Judgment, it's our time. From WMYC Studios and Snap Judgment's underground lair, Snap Judgment, Spooked, 10, Creepy Crawling. It's made of snouts and claws and wings and teeth just for you. My name is Glenn Washington. Keep the lights on. Because Snap Judgment's All Hallows Eve special Spooked starts now. Richmond, Virginia. Back in the day, our man, Ray Christian, he spent his childhood summers running them streets with a pack of kids, looking for adventure, playing kickball, finding trouble. Raised from a poor neighborhood, lots of recently migrated sharecropping families, lots of houses without running water. And this is where our story begins.
The group of us changed frequently, different combination of boys, let's say of about six or seven different guys. And it was pretty typical in the summer times when we didn't go to school. All of us just kind of roamed. Our parents were blue collar workers. It would be oppressively hot in the summertime. The heat would be radiating off the asphalt. You'd have tar stuck to the bottom of your shoe. And none of us had air conditioning. One sanctuary for us, because we lived directly behind the, the biggest uh, black funeral home in the city. And uh, this place had air conditioning in it. To walk inside the funeral home, all of us damp from sweat, it was like you would cool off immediately. Now, such was the community. People often went inside the funeral home to see people they barely knew or they just heard about, or maybe they were infamous in some way. That's the person who got killed robbing something. That's the kid that got ran over on his bike in front of the funeral home. So people often just went in to see people. They didn't have to know them. That, that was real common in the community. And the people who ran the funeral home, the funeral owners, they knew that a lot of times we would come in just to get out of the heat. But they had one kind of unwritten rule is you couldn't come in unless you were in a viewing room. You couldn't just be hanging. Uh, you, you could go in the viewing room, which meant that uh, we had to sit and look at a body. We would do it. We wouldn't want to. But we had all done it so many times, we knew the rules of the game. I'm about 12 years old when this story takes place. And it was late summer, and it was, it was hot as hell, probably one of the hottest days that I could actually remember. And we all piled into the funeral home in our usual fashion. We had just finished playing kickball outside, and what was unusual about that is I kicked the ball and it went way across the street toward this fence where this like crazy dog lived who would snap and snarl if anything got near that fence. Oh my God, it's going to go in the yard. And all of a sudden this kid just came out of nowhere and slapped the ball down and he saved the day. And none of us had seen him before. In the moment that that happened, not a one of us even said, who is this dude? It's because he looked like us, but this particular kid, he was with none of us. And that's when we first met him. We had all went inside in the funeral home and we're sitting on the road like we normally would do. And he was sitting with us and he didn't speak and we weren't speaking because we weren't supposed to. So his being unusually quiet was just par for the course, but when we got up and we left, a couple of us were saying, man, he could play good. What's his name? Uh, I think he's, who is he? So this boy started turning up all the time when we were playing. None of us could remember him ever being there when we would start a game. When we were trying to meet to get together, it would always be in the heat of the game. When all of us were thinking about nothing but the game, kicking the ball, throwing the ball, chasing each other, being on our bikes, racing around the corner, there'd be one more of us. He was skinny, 
brown skin, I'd say a two inch afro, not much of a fro. He wore short sleeve shirt, not buttoned at all, nothing underneath it. Cut off pants, tennis shoes and no socks. He didn't speak, but I would say something like, uh, do you want to go up the street or do you want to stay here? I would give him possible options. He would nod or shoulder shrug or have an expression on his face. The reason why none of us went into great depth about why he didn't speak is because in our community there were several kids and adults who had this kind of disability. This was an era where people with uh, developmental delays, they didn't get treated at all. I saw lots of kids coming out of the country who didn't speak or couldn't speak, who were mute. Um, that, that wasn't so uncommon. I probably knew a half a dozen kids like that. One day, me and the kid was hanging out in the alley, and I was looking at pigeons flying around the funeral home. And he looked up. And I had the sensation that he was saying, I like pigeons. I like pigeons. So I took him to my house to see my pigeons. I got introduced to pigeons, raising pigeons, when I was maybe 10 years old. You put them on your arm or something, you give them a grain of corn, and they were cool and they relaxed. You could. You could rub their back and they would squat down, raise their feathers up, pull their wings up in the air and spread them and they wouldn't, they wouldn't fly off. And to be able to walk out into the street with them and toss them up in the air and watch them just sail in the distance and it comes back to you, that was, that was the magic. It, you made a bird come back to you. So I was raising uh, pigeons in a makeshift coop I built in the uh, back of our house, uh, where I lived with my mama and my stepdad. And um, like most of the kids, we didn't have any real formal coops. We'd make them out of pieces of plywood and old signs and posters, even old television sets. There's one type of pigeon called rollers. The rollers are different in that they have this habit of flipping in the air. We call it rolling, but what they're really doing is flipping. The effect of that is the pigeon would be flying and it would be like he stopped flying in midair and start falling out of the sky. That's what it looks like. And they flip and flip. The better ones will do that almost till they hit the ground and come back up. It, it's a marvelous thing to see. And we would jump up and down and scream and holler and clap our hands to encourage them to, to roll. And you, it'd be a bunch of us standing around flipping, screaming, hollering. Come on, come on, come on, slapping our hands together. Come on, come on, come on. All of us had different calls for our pigeons, and we would do that. These pigeons were all financially out of our means. We were all poor kids. Um, a pigeon like that would probably cost $6 in 1972, um, We were okay with any bird you could get, but if you had a roller, you know, up to that point, I hadn't had any rollers. We're in the backyard, and he's really excited, and he's comfortable with pigeons, you know. 
He knew how to hold them the right way, the way he smiled with them, the way he touched them and spread their wings, how they were comfortable with him, the way he walked around the coop and pulled at my wire and looked at my nails and he smiled at me and we walked around and he looked to see what I was feeding them. And, but the one thing I couldn't get from him then was, where are you from? Where you stay at, man? Who your folks is? Who you related to? What school you go to? Who you is? You know? And he would give me nothing. We would hang out more and more. We'd do more walking through the back alleys. We'd spend more time in my backyard. And one thing in particular happened. We were walking through the alley. And it A lot of the alleys were dominated by dogs. Some old street dog that would just take over an alley. And this was one of those cases. And we both just took off. And we ran and we ran and I didn't look back to see what the dog was doing. And I got about two blocks away and I was out of breath. And and we got away, we did it, we were together. We boys, we bonded, right? We friends now bent over and I was heaving and breathing hard and, but uh, he wasn't there he wasn't with me and I didn't see him again until the next day for the first time I was starting to feel funny about him that didn't make sense it was scary it's like you disappeared you, there, weren't, there was no place to go I wanted to see him so badly the next day, he appeared. I was in the backyard with the pigeons. I turned around and there he was. And we went, he went to the coop like he normally would do. And I had to ask him, wait, before we do anything else, before we play, what, what happened to you yesterday? Where'd you go? And he gave me nothing. When I mentioned to my mother about this boy who would come and go and disappear and he wouldn't speak, my mother immediately told me, stay away from him. She just said, stay away from him. She was afraid. I didn't want to give him up. I didn't want to. It wasn't like I had a lot of friends. Whatever it was, it was good to me. He was my friend. I'm going to say it was a month later. So we're probably in August now. And we were taking our usual walk through the back alleys behind the funeral home. And we'd been walking for a couple of blocks. But we started going, and he was leading me in a direction that we had never went before. This was the first time he had ever wanted to show me something. I'm still feeling funny about him. And we walked about four or five more blocks and we stopped in front of this house. It had previously been burned and it was partially burned down. And it was falling apart and weeds and trees were growing up in the yard. And that doesn't mean anything. It's been burned for, I'm thinking, you must live somewhere near, around, what, what is it? Is it a building here? 
But as I'm standing there and I look at the house, I immediately remember this is the house where that kid died in a fire. Now my heart's really starting to beat fast. And he gives me the impression that he wants me to, to go inside the house. And I don't want to. I want to leave. But for whatever reason, I couldn't move. I don't mean like I was paralyzed or anything. I just, I felt compelled to stay right there and see it through. But I was scared. I mean, I, I was getting those bumps. I was breathing hard. And then I started crying. Not boohooing, but the kind of fear crying when tears just roll down your face. And I'm breathing hard, and I'm looking at him, and I'm thinking, you ain't that kid that got killed in the fire? I ain't believing that. I mean, what am I thinking? Okay, I'm on the wrong track with this, right? But it seems like he's, I'm getting this data. Why I can't move like kid killed in the fire? I felt compelled to walk inside the house. But the kid wasn't walking with me. He stayed outside. I was having that feeling that I needed to go forward inside the house. And if the steps are falling apart and and the ceilings collapse, the boards are, are wobbly and they're making creaky sounds. And the building is so unstable. But when I get up the steps, the way the light uh, came in from the ceiling, I see the pigeons. And I, I know immediately, these are rollers. These are rollers. They're rollers up here. And I'm not afraid anymore. And not only are there rollers, This is a couple, and they've got squabs or baby pigeons. I get the pigeons, babies and all, which was which was quite difficult uh, trying to because they were flapping like crazy, and uh, you know I'm 12 years old. I'm trying to press them to my chest. I started cooing at them, coo, coo, which is something we would do to try to calm pigeons down, and it worked. And they stopped trying to flap and struggle with me. When I come outside of the house with the pigeons pressed against my chest, you know, they're flapping, going crazy. I want him to see this. This this is amazing. And uh, he's not there when I come out. What he wanted me to have was those rollers. He knew I spoke about rollers all the time when we talked about pigeons, if I had rollers. I never saw him again. When his babies were ready to be passed on, he was ready to pass on. Those were my first rollers. And I kept, I I probably kept six, seven generations of them. Until I left home to join the Army. Sorry about that. I ended up trading him off to another boy, which was the tradition.
That's our dear friend, Dr. Raymond Christian. Now, for the record, Ray still loves his animals. You'd hear him go on about chasing down escaped hogs on his farm in North Carolina. That original score for that piece was composed and performed by the one and only Leon Morimoto. The story was produced by Anna Sussman. And Snappers, if you like this story, if you enjoyed this piece, you should know that we've created a whole podcast of supernatural stories. It's called Spooked. All new, amazing stories from the dark side. Get it right now if you dare on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Step Judgment presents Spooked. And when we return, just because something is dead and buried doesn't mean that it's dead and buried. When Spook 10, Creepy Crawly continues, stay tuned. Welcome back, dear listeners, to Spook 10, Creepy Crawly. Now, when most people see roadkill on the side of the road, they don't stop to look, they don't stop to pick it up, and they most definitely don't take it home with them. But Tracy Barrow, she isn't like most people. I was walking home one day and I found a dead bird on the side of the road. All I wanted was like a bitchin' bird skull necklace, just something that I could show off. And that's when it all started. I was hooked. I started picking up dead animals on the side of the road and putting them in our freezer or keeping parts of them on my back porch. When I saw a piece of roadkill on the side of the street, I would just think to myself, ooh, what could I do with that? I was really only looking at roadkill as art supplies, basically. My boyfriend, Nate, he just didn't like it at all. It, it got to the point where he kind of asked me, when are you going to stop this? And I basically told him never. The first squirrel that I ever did, uh, I named him Mr. January because I found him in the gutter on New Year's Eve. The second squirrel I ever did, Valentina, is my favorite. I found her close to Valentine's Day. You know, I've got a squirrel that has wings. Kind of the fan favorite is actually the Boy Scout raccoon. By this time, I had been getting wrist deep in roadkill for years. I could probably stuff a squirrel in my sleep. Until one day, my mom texted me, Hey, I found a new squirrel. It's tied up in a dog do bag in the freezer. So after work, I, I rushed home. And I was really glad that I did because the bag, it was actually just sitting there open, which doesn't bother me, but Nate would have flipped. So I put it on my, in my workstation out on the back porch. The way I always start with a mount, I get a good hard look at the animal. I kind of wait for them 
to speak to me in lack of a better word and see what is unique about them. It was gorgeous as far as roadkill goes. It didn't have any broken bones. It didn't have blood. It didn't have fleas and maggots and flies and ants in it. It was really in good shape. It had really nice brown fur and the whole thing was kind of golden brown, but the tip of its tail was white. Normally, a specimen this perfect is a home run, but there was something about this particular squirrel that looking at it just made my skin crawl. And I couldn't exactly explain why I felt uncomfortable. I just, it was almost like I had this no, 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 kind of drowning it out. It felt more like being screamed at, honestly. It was frozen solid, but it almost looked like it could hop up and run up the tree. As I was looking at the squirrel, I was just struck with these horrible, intrusive thoughts. You're disgusting. What are you doing? What are you thinking? Stop this right now. How dare you? So I had been struggling with these thoughts, and I picked up the squirrel, and I picked up the X-Acto knife, and I always start the incision right between the shoulder blades, uh, you know, below at the base of its neck, and then, you know, you go from the shoulder blades down to the tailbone. As soon as I pressed the tip of the X-Acto into the skin, I felt it go in that tiny bit. The fur twitched. Uh, it was just a fraction of a second, but I, I definitely saw it. That quick little flick, that little shiver, and it startled me. So I, I dropped the squirrel and the knife, and I expected it to jump up and run away. I poked it and convinced myself that it was a dead squirrel. Like, I mean, obviously it was a dead squirrel. So I steeled myself, picked the squirrel back up, got the X-Acto blade, and like ripping off a Band-Aid, I just, I stuck the knife in and dragged it down the spine line. I worked my hands and the blade, got it to the point where I can get my hands around its stomach in between the skin and the body. And then I started working its little arms by just popping them backwards through the skin and got it skinned out. So it was almost like it was wearing a onesie of its own skin. And the final part was uh, cutting the lip. I suddenly had a really sharp pain underneath the knuckle of the pinky on my right hand. I drop the squirrel, I drop the blade, and I look at my hand. The glove had actually been torn open, and underneath it, there were four short scratch marks on my skin, all really close together. So I took off the damaged glove, 
And as I was doing that, I noticed a little tiny bit of movement in my peripheral vision. So I looked back up at the squirrel and it was lying on the table and I saw the four fingers on its paw slowly curl up into a little fist, hold for a second, and then really slowly relax. Yeah, that me up. I just, I panicked. Having these feelings, seeing the fur move, I can explain that. Whatever, that's just my own brain being a having a squirrel paw wound on my hand was much harder to explain away. Maybe I put too much pressure on the brain and that sent a signal through the dead muscles to make the paw flick and it caught my glove just right. That has to be it because the only other explanation is that I just skinned this squirrel alive. It did occur to me several times to just stop. It felt like I was gonna be cursed from that point on to never have another good experience with taxidermy, which would be devastating. Like, what if I'm done? What if it's gonna be like this with every animal from now on? I got as far as picking everything up to throw it out. But if I had given up, it would have been a huge step backwards. I popped on a new glove, clipped the wrists and the uh, ankles out off the carcass. I buried it in a plastic tub under about 10 pounds of salt so that it could dehydrate and put it on the shelf underneath my, uh, underneath my bedroom window and went to bed. I could barely sleep that night because the scratch just was throbbing and every time it throbbed, I thought about the squirrel. The next morning I woke up and all I had to do was change the salt. It can't possibly get as weird as it was yesterday. I took the big bag of salt outside. When I opened the tub that had the skin inside, the skin was sitting up halfway out of the salt as if it had burrowed up for air like a zombie getting up from its grave. It was just sitting there, just staring at me with these empty eyelids. (laughs) Those little paws kind of sticking up, reaching out. There's no way this dead, hollow squirrel had pushed its way up through 10 pounds of salt. There was also no way that anybody had touched it because they all think it's disgusting. I just dumped out the salt, (laughs) buried it again, put it on the shelf, and walked away from it for... I expected it to be a, a very long time. One morning while I was finishing my coffee, I heard a squirrel start barking. 
and I for a second I froze because I'm thinking oh my god it's it's back it wants revenge but it was just another squirrel outside I just felt sad thinking that you know well dang this squirrel that I was so afraid of it also used to nibble and caper and skitter and bark and um bearing nuts and it just kind of it just kind of all hit me that this was a living thing and it had i don't know dignity i went back to the salt tub and uh you know the pelt was actually still in there it, it hadn't uh tried to escape again but i just opened it up I felt like I owed it an apology, and I started talking to it. So I said, look, I'm sorry I didn't listen because I think that you were telling me to stop before I even started. The only thing that I want to do is preserve you and make you last forever. So the next morning, I woke up. And I walked out onto the porch. I looked up in the big oak tree that's right over the fence. I saw um, a brown squirrel, about medium size, really bushy tail with a white tip. A pelt that was identical to the one, I mean, you know, currently mummifying under 10 pounds of salt in a tub a few feet away from me. How common is it, is it to have, like, identical pelts. Is that like a common thing? They're like snowflakes, you know? I just wanted to see what would happen. So I took an almond between my thumb and finger and I just held it out and sure enough, the squirrel jumped from the tree onto the railing of my balcony and hopped along the railing until it got to my hand. I mean, my hand was shaking like crazy. This squirrel sniffed me so close that I I felt its nose on my fingertip. And then it grabbed the almond in its teeth, turned around, hopped over to the other end of the fence, jumped to the tree, climbed up back to that branch and looked at me again and we just made eye contact for another couple seconds and it just dashed back up into the tree. It just, it was like it disappeared before it even reached the top of the branches. So I was just completely re-energized and I was finally, I finally knew what I was going to do with the squirrel pelt. So show me. Well, here, I've got to take the pins out of its face. It's all dry now. It's been dry for ages. Yeah, so he's going to be holding his own little skull. How are you feeling about doing that? Are you a little bit more apprehensive now? I, yeah, to be fair, (laughs) I am, I am still kind of expecting it to move (laughs) one of these days.
call me snappers. No cards or letters. That squirrel was frozen solid. Kaput. Before the knives even came out. Solid, you hear me? Tracy, Margaret Barrow, she's still doing taxidermy. And none of her other subjects have ever tried to get their revenge yet. Check out our work. We're going to have a link on our website, spookpodcast.org. The original score for that story was by Leon. Give me a beat, Morimoto. It was produced by Jasmine Aguilera. And we're just getting started to Snap Nation. The story you just heard was featured on our all-new Supernatural podcast, Snap Judgment Presents Spooked. Brand new season. We're dropping 15 new episodes each. Narrated directly by the person who lived the tale. No actors, no pretenders, real people, real stories. Spookpodcast.org. Now, when our creepy crawly episode continues, you think that a person's home is their castle, right? But what if whoever was there first, what if they feel exactly the same way? In just a moment, when Spook continues, stay tuned. WNYC Studios and Snapjacks Underground Lair. You're listening to Spook 10 Creepy Crawling. My name is from Washington. Now, have you ever had a job that you wanted to quit? Like, really, really wanted to quit, but you couldn't because you gotta make that money, right? Well, that's the situation our next guest finds himself in. But it's much, much worse than you or he imagined. Spooked. So I got a call from a guy um, to ask me to go help with a drywall job. And uh, (laughs) chills. Okay, so um, while I'm working in this house as a drywaller, from from the first day I was in this house, I'd be hearing, I'd be working upstairs, I'd be hearing somebody with a heavy pair of boots, like a full-grown adult, walking up the stairs, these old creaky wooden stairs. I'd be working around the stairwell on the walls, on the ceiling above the stairwell. And I hear these foot, foot stomps coming up the stairs, and I'm looking, it's right there, right by me, but there's nobody there. Nobody. I'm alone for this job most of the time. There was one day where the guy who called me, he showed up. We were working the upstairs stairwell, and he's got a stretch plank stretched out on a ladder over the top of the stairwell even. And it's this aluminum stretch plank He's standing on this, I'm standing on the wall next to it, and we're both coating 
coating the, the ceiling and the walls and stuff with our drywall mud. And we hear the, the footsteps coming up. And I told him, I said, see, this is what I'm talking about. You hear these footsteps every day. And he's like, oh, come on, man. He's not believing it, yet he's hearing it. He looks over at me, and I'm looking at him. as like, I'm telling you, dude. And as I'm talking to him, out of nowhere, the stretch plank he's standing on kind of jumps up in the air a little bit. Like somebody just hit it from underneath. He jumped off of that thing. And he, he jumped down. He, he's scared. He goes out the window. I went out the damn window because he did. And we're sitting on the little bit of a roof outside of this window looking at each other like, what the hell is that? And I'm like, I told you there's some crazy crap in this freaking house. You got me stuck on this stupid job. I don't want to do this no more. This is, this is insane. So we're sitting out there and we were kind of looking in a window and like, man, there's hoping nothing comes out. We don't want to see anything come in the window. And we're like, yeah, let's get out of here. We're done. And we jump off of this roof onto the ground. It was, it was probably maybe like a 10 foot drop or something. It wasn't that bad. The next day I show up at the house and I'm, I'm waiting for him outside because I didn't want to go in by myself. And he calls me and of course he wasn't going to make it. Asked me, please, I will pay you more money to hurry up and get that house done. Get in, get out, and, and get out of there. I was like, oh man, I have five kids. Uh, this is how I, I feed my family, take care of my family, and put food on the table. I have to do this job. I can't leave the, leave the house. I'm there until it's done. Um, one morning when I had pulled into the house, into the driveway to start for the day or whatever, the neighbor was outside. Then we started talking. I told him about the, the, the heavy boot steps on the stairs. And then when he told me, you know, it was probably the, the guy who hung himself, you're hearing his feet bouncing off the wall. That's what you're hearing. And he said in the mid 80s, the man who lived in that house had hung himself. He knew of, of activities in the house. There's some sort of ghost activities going on in that house. And that's why he said, that's why people don't stay in that house. Nobody stays in the house for more than a year at a time. And it's been completely remodeled on the inside, he said, at least three times already. But the last family who lived in there, they left everything. And one of the days to follow, um, I was getting closer to finishing the job. I was at the bottom of the stairwell and I, I felt something was nearby, a presence or whatever. I looked up the stairwell and I seen like it looked like fingers. There was fingers from a hand coming through the, the wooden banisters coming out into the stairwell. And then there was a second one, it was a second hand. And I didn't know what to do. I was like, I was starting to freeze. They were humanish hands. They were kind of transparent. But then after the, the two hands came out, then a, a forehead, and then slowly the side view of a face. It 
it was like pulling itself through the banister above the stairwell and then it, it kind of stopped pulling itself forward where it had its head far enough out of the, into the stairwell. This thing is turning down and looking at me and I am completely frozen. I didn't know what to do. I'm just terrified. I'm looking up at it as a human head. It was a decaying looking face on this thing though. It, it was just the grossest, scariest thing I've ever seen. It had me locked by the eyes and when it actually moved, it, it moved its head. It, I, I felt I got 10 years older instantly. I was just shutting down and giving up. Just like, I was just so, so scared. Freaking out, I don't know what to do. I'm reaching for stuff. I find my, my drywall hatchet. It was hooked in the, my drywall pouch. And I pull it out and I throw it at this thing. Damaging what I had just done up there, but I don't care. And the, this, this thing, it, it disappeared. I had to get out of there. I had to go. I finished up what I was paid to do. I manned up through it. I, I did it. I was a warrior. I packed my gear. I got in my truck. Down the road I went and I never looked back. The history of the house from what I was told by the neighbor, as families, they buy the house or they rent the house or whatever, nobody had stayed there for, for more than a year. That's why I got called in to help the sister do an interior cosmetics of what that basically was. To help for the selling point of the house or whatever, for the next person to come in, to give them the, the bright paint, the, the new light fixtures. They go, wow, this is cozy. Good luck with that. Just wait. <laughs> I, I actually heard um, a man had bought the house and do I have a moral obligation to tell him about this? Uh. I spoke with the man though, but I feel guilty because I didn't, I couldn't, I just couldn't do it. Daniel Joseph for sharing your story with the spook. The original soundscape for that story was composed and performed by Leon Morimoto. It was produced by none other than Anna Sussman. Now then, if you need even more stories, to help you walk that dark path. Know this, supernatural storytelling awaits. 15 brand new spook episodes. 15 episodes, are you kidding me? I kid you not. Just go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast and get this one. Snap Judgment presents Spooked. Our show is produced by people who remain skeptical of everything they read, but truly believe everything they say. Don't just hide the valuables. Hide yourself. For the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Pat Machine Miller has them bloodshot eyes. 
and a Sussman carries an hourglass. Eliza Smith fears the sun. Renzo Gorio loves the night. Liz Mack isn't hungry for food. Adiza, no sleep Egan. Leon, TikTok Bonimoto. Nancy Lopez sees dead people. Taylor Cott knows the future. Shayna Sheely reads the past. Jasmine Aguilera, she never orders off the menu. And while some people, inexplicably, they remain convinced that this, this somehow is the news, this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, to go to Jasmine Aguilera's fancy midnight restaurant, only when you see yourself listed as a dish on the menu, do you realize it's too late. And even then, even then you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is WNYC.